This week on the podcast, little nonprofit news feed for the last week of October, Nick. October 25th. Wow. We're done with October almost? Almost. It's it's a little spooky. Oh, good one. I see what you did there. Uh, because it's terrifying when we get to the end of October and November and end of year comes upon us. Nick, what do we have today for our at-a-glance summaries here? Sure. So the first story that we really wanted to highlight was one out of Hong Kong, where it appears that Amnesty International is going to be essentially forced out. So the international human rights group Amnesty International announced via press release that they were completely shutting down all their operations within the country. And the decision comes on the heels of Hong Kong's quite controversial new national security law, which has made it incredibly difficult for groups like Amnesty to operate. The law, if you'll remember, was introduced back in June of 2020, um, subsequent uh, following all the, the protests. Um, but it's already been used to crack down on nonviolent political protest and uh, stifle civil society. Uh, it's been used to attack activist groups. And according to reporting from The Guardian, more than 35 other civil society groups have been essentially forced to shut down. Um, the problem is that this national security law is so broad and vague, essentially anything that borders on critiquing the government, which would include all pro-democracy work, uh, runs you into trouble and you can then end up being jailed, which is not something that you want to have happen to you. Um, so this is a sad development. It seems like Amnesty is going to reshift um, their headquarters into um, different headquarters in Asia um, and continue to do reporting and, and work out of there just based somewhere else. But Man, this is crazy, and this is you know this is a trend that we're seeing increasingly, uh, you know, across countries, uh, authoritarian governments cracking down on civil society that they view as a threat. But I wonder what your take on this is, George, for the for nonprofits and and civil society groups more generally. It's obviously a sad step, and you know you hear this sort of overreach of of government to curtail speech to. Jail people that are in the media, in nonprofits, uh, campaigning for you know equal, fair justice. Like it's just simply put in my mind when I see something like this. It, there's an inevitability in the phrase that you know mold grows in the dark. And when you remove Amnesty International and the power that that organization has to sort of bring this external eye, albeit maybe you can sometimes if you were it's hard for me to justify the other side, but like Western or European mindset, but there's still a, a universal feeling to the protection of rights and the right to voice. It, it scares me a bit for um, what is potentially to come and what will never be known uh, in some of the activities in Hong Kong and beyond when you uh, extend this to the Uyghurs and, and you know how far that it seems that the regime will go to uh, curtail, investigate and, and punish. Uh, thoughts that are that are not to the benefit of the community as defined by by the leader. Absolutely. And and to your point, we, we focused in this story on an international organization which has the means uh, to relocate and continue operations in some sense from elsewhere. But like your heart breaks for the people on the streets of Hong Kong who 
you know, the the walls of authoritarianism are just kind of slowly closing in around them. Um, so a sad story, but an interesting segue into our next one when we talk about uh, free speech on on digital platforms. And this was a story that I was not previously aware that the, if we'll all remember, the whistleblower Francis Haugen, um, who a couple weeks ago uh, came forward and disclosed lots of internal reporting from Facebook that showed that Facebook's own data showed that the platform was being used and potentially led to real world harm. But it turns out that the whistleblower was being backed and represented by a nonprofit group called Whistleblower Aid. Um, and the group in this story from the Washington Post said that they took a huge gamble by <laughs> deciding to take her on as a client because their their operating revenues were only about two million a year, and they took on one of the highest profile whistleblowers that that I can remember at least within the past couple years. And it's really interesting. They provide support to whistleblowers, both legal support, but they also provide services like physical security and even mental health counseling. It's a really interesting organization. So wanted to highlight the uh, nonprofit doing the work here, keeping some of our biggest institutions accountable at the end of the day. But also, George, give you the space uh, just to talk about uh, Facebook, because, you know, we we use the platform. We're on it all the time. We uh, are professionals. We advertise on the platform. And this is a, a really significant story and something that's, I think, important for us to all kind of think about operating in the in the space. Yeah. So there's two paths to to wander down here. One is the the narrative of Facebook that I want to put a pin in and come back to. You're going to hold, make sure we come back to it because the other one is, is pulling this thread a bit more and what you're going and what I've been seeing and hearing in sort of whistleblower aid. The money in part for whistleblower aid, there was a check written for 150000 that came from Pierre Omidyar, the Pierre Omidyar Foundation, a very prominent philanthropy, clearly of a left-leaning, uh, firmly left-leaning uh, type of mindset is is being brought to light in in some of these articles from the Washington Post and Politico, and the other side of it is the PR Omidyar <clears throat> strategy network is also representing the PR around uh, Haugen's defense. And so, you know, some of this is like, oh, is this just like one billionaire versus another, and using the guise of a nonprofit? And like, I definitely don't see it that way. When you hear the sort of, oh, here's whistleblower aid supporting Haugen, like. She's not getting money from them. It's like in need of defense. And by the way, it's kind of an interesting side note. Um, she's not want for money anyway, because apparently she's like a Bitcoin enthusiast for many years and has is doing fine, right? She's all right, right? It wasn't like, hey, we're going to pay you to, to flip on Facebook so you can finally make your, like, it, this is the land of money's not an issue, folks. Getting back to it, I really kind of love what Pierre Midyar is doing as a sort of check and balance. Like, frankly, like big tech needs to have scrutiny. It needs to have a way uh, to, you know, frankly, translate things for our policymakers, which, you know what, aren't the most tech savvy. And to do that, they, you know, with, you know, aid and, and this type of work. So is the, um, oh, I just blanked on it. It's the whistleblower aid group, which is only 2 million, but guess what? Like the people that can rein this in uh, are the folks that work inside the organization. That's where the information is. They're good people sometimes doing work where finally it crosses the final moral boundary. And they just can't 
they just can't justify it anymore. And that's where you, um, you just need that little bit of support. You need to know that someone's going to get your back because guess what? Being a whistleblower is, you know, frankly, I don't think anywhere near glamorous because they're going to drag you because it is your reputation versus theirs. And so she is going through it in order to bravely present this information. I don't know if there's any, any more on that. Now, the next thread, before I go to the next thread, that, that's what I see in the Omidyar connection. And like, that'll be sort of used as, again, attack verticals for saying like, see, look, it's just Pierre Omidyar doing like a billionaire grudge against Mark Zuckerberg. And I, I, you know, I don't see that. That's where the money's coming from. But here's a, here's a nonprofit that's able to be in the middle of this. No, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think that this level of accountability is so important. And, and kind of how we get there is, is also important. But um, yeah, I, I, you know, it catapults to the forefront of a national conversation, a problem that, quite frankly, our government has been unable to address or unable to even figure out how to address for a very long time. Great work. Now to your to your second point. <laughs> the second point. The truth of the matter is that these white papers are strategically being released in a way that now news organizations are rallying around this cry to say, <clears throat> rein it in, break it up, protect it, regulate it, and do this. And it, you know, it is, I'm always suspicious about these coordinated attacks. So one side of me is like suspicious about these coordinated media attacks. Like they're all on the sort of like same, like same Slack channel being like, all right, you're going to drop this, this, this. Like this is a coordinated effort to really bring heat on Facebook and appropriately so. I just want to also acknowledge that, you know, it is it is a platform. And if you just from a high level, if you crush that platform, 12 more will take its place. The real issue is how we govern ourselves in a digital first society. That is hard. It is very hard. The amount of sort of support and AI work that goes into monitoring and managing this much engagement online is not properly understood by the scale that humans understand, I think. It is cavernous, impossible amounts of information to look over. It's not the sort of message board of like, oh, if they just block this, it just won't work that way. And Pandora's box has already been opened. So if you're asking me, would we be safer? Would my future kids, who I'm going to have to decide how they interact with social media, be safer if we mashed Facebook into the ground? Like, social justice, let's burn this, you know, fill in the blank to the ground. I think there would be an unintended consequence to that. Now, on the other side of it, I am terrified of the leader that Zuckerberg has proven himself to be, which is utilitarian in its sort of march toward user acquisition and explicitly trying to go after, convert, and capture the attention of younger and younger people. The way that is framed, uh, I think, is not sort of accurate when I hear it from either side, because the truth is that kids are going to be on social. And I want something with strong oversight, strong budget and representation to be there. I don't want a Chinese company backed, speaking to our last piece, TikTok, being the winner and assuming that good things will happen. Like, it just won't. I'd rather have the, the sort of the neck we could wring in our backyard as opposed to, you know, again, remind you, see, see last story, a group that's kicking out Amnesty International, 
like make no mistake, the words safe and social media don't go together well. So I think it's more complicated. I worry that it's baby with the bathwater. We do something extreme. We need oversight. I am questioning every single time we spend a single dollar on Facebook because it does make me a little sick to watch the sort of grow at all costs and the social consequences that's proved. But I think it's an inevitability that the social media leader would run into the net effects of attention at all costs algorithms and the way that interacts with what triggers the human emotion, making making it simple, like a lot of fancy words to say, make people angry, you get money. Keep doing that enough, you make more money. And if you're shareholder bound, huzzah, just keep doing that. That's a dangerous engine. So we need to work on modifying it. But, you know, honestly, thank goodness this is in our backyard and we're able to bring this type of attention, scrutiny, and regulation to it, as opposed to, again, see TikTok. You want to be you want to be mindful of, of how we treat and manage this uh, this moment. But I don't know. There's a lot going on. There is. The one the one piece I'll I'll add to this conversation is to your point about regulation, we're kind of lucky they're within our jurisdiction. Our our government can, should they choose to do something about it, do it. I think that a lot of Americans, myself included, for a long time, underestimated Facebook's reach and penetration outside of the United States. Um, in countries that you just were getting access to the internet widely within the past decade, a lot of these countries, it's a it's like a Facebook first internet almost. Um, and you know, just shouting out to our last uh, one of our Nobel Peace Prize winners from the Philippines is a journalist who uh, created a news organization to combat misinformation on Facebook, where Facebook is almost ubiquitous with news and information. So, yeah, it, like the the reach and the stakes here are much broader than just um, those with on U.S. soil. So, really, really important questions to think about. But our most important international relations and policy may end up playing out via Facebook. When you talk about like, there's this terrible sort of in threads that I read and pieces like that, just awful sort of data tracking that shows the amount, the the amount of time from when Facebook enters a sort of critical population base of a underdeveloped country and the point at which civil unrest happens. I was like, all right, now now we can tell within three months, civil unrest will happen. I'm like, hey, you know, like apply half of the amount of work that we're doing in the U.S. to regulate, you know, remove that. You, you see a wild, um, a wild West happening on social media. But again, the power is in our backyard for now to have that. The other narrative that's coming out of the Facebook quarterly earnings, which were unbelievable, right, because people still use it. Remember that in your filter bubble, like everyone's leaving Facebook. If you bring that back, you are incorrect. Look at the Facebook uh, Q3 earnings. They crushed it, simply crushed it. They're printing money. So everyone's leaving faith. Don't let that enter your mindset. Like, I think this is still a playground you have to be. You can do it with sort of a communication that acknowledges like we're on a platform we don't fully agree with. And if we leave it simply because we don't want to participate, then you're missing an opportunity to have a conversation with an audience and pay attention to also how Facebook is needing to 
again, go after a younger market, which scares the scares the dad out of me um, because they're uh, I think they they were talking about 13, 14 percent um, in terms of decline in a younger audience, and and that's that's where growth comes from. A lot of Facebook, today. a lot of thoughts. Should we move on? If we must, Nick, I think we have. If we must, I think we've we, we've exhausted that thread uh-huh. for now. It- Maybe we can talk about it more on Trump's new social media platform. But Huzzah. our first story. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, man. <laughs> our next story, though, is actually an interesting one and one that's hyper relevant to a lot of clients that we at Whole Whale have the pleasure um, to work with. And that is that U.S. surgeons um, actually at, at NYU, just a couple blocks from me, um, have transplanted a pig kidney into a human person. Um, Now, this type of organ transplant is the first of its kind. And I know you're probably thinking this is, you know, why why would they do that? There's no science. The person, uh, the individual in this case, I believe was certified as as brain dead at this point. Um, So it was more for, for research purposes than anything. But this is a huge development. And as any of our clients will tell you, and probably a lot of our audience knows, the wait list for receiving um, organ donations in America is astronomically long. There, it's it's to the point of it being really, really challenging to be put on that list, and and know that in all likelihood, quite frankly, it just may not happen that you'll be able to receive a transplant. So this is groundbreaking surgery that we just wanted to highlight, particularly for. Um, those in the OPO organ procurement organization community. Yeah, just to put some numbers to this, there are currently ninety three thousand ish kidneys. Uh, oh, sorry, wait, a wait list for a kidney, and you know, groups like Donate Life America have been doing a lot of work in this, pulling into nonprofit. And while we're talking about it, there are such like it's just an incredible amount of infrastructure for organ procurement organizations. And how that interacts with the hospital, how that is public awareness for the organ registry and live donors. Like there is a incredible ecosystem of nonprofits and I'm excited. Um, I'm really excited to see that there's potentially a new source of, of organs. That said, I'm also worried that this type of news cycle gets out there like, oh, we can like suddenly just grab organs from pigs. No problem. Like, let's just be clear. This is years and years off. And in the meantime, you know, see article one, there are 93,000 people waiting right now for a kidney just alone. And the answer is not here today. So I, I just sometimes worry that like we see this and like, we kind of like, well, roll, roll down the sleeves. Our work is done here. And I, and I hope that doesn't take any momentum out of the, you know, OPO uh, organizations and, and, groups like Donate Life America working on organ registry, which is still well, well, well below where it needs to be. Absolutely. I agree. And if that's something that you have not thought about before, and if you are interested in registering, um, that's a decision that you're interested in thinking about. We recommend um, doing some research and considering uh, signing up for the National Organ Donor Registry. Yeah, there's another sort of weird nuance here that there is some guidance from the American Society of Transplantation about whether or not organs should be used from donors who test positive for COVID-19. 
So just to, you know, I, I know this is a bit morose, but frankly, like, you know, where organs come from, right? After you're gone, we're like, Hey, there's a conversation that's had with uh, the family. Obviously there's an organ designation. And in this though, I'd imagine there's a, there's, you know, obviously some backlog because there's a lot of people now dying from COVID and there's questions about uh, whether or not they'd recommend transportation of organs from donors who had the virus. So that would lead to a shortage of, uh, of organs as well. But it, you know, it's, it's, it's a question that's out there. Some are, some aren't, but you can, you can find that pretty quickly at uh, organdonor.gov. Great. Thanks for that resource, George. I'll move us along to our next story. And this is one that comes from Montgomery, Alabama, where the Alabama Department of Human Resources says that almost 1,300 foster kids have been adopted since the start of the pandemic. Um, But the need for loving homes still exists and that there's a new nonprofit called the Court Appointed Special Advocates of Montgomery County or CASA that's advocating for children in the classroom. And it seems that they're doing an event that will feature a 5K run um, to raise funds to continue to expand this program. But um, yeah, great work. Just wanted to highlight uh, a, a state that quite frankly, you probably don't talk a lot about um, Alabama on this podcast. Um, so a good local organization doing great work um, to helping kids in the foster care system. Yeah, it's one of those secondary narratives, I wonder how overall stats are around U.S. adoption rates, uh, COVID, post-COVID. And then if you look at if you look at the net effects of what may be happening in the economy and it getting, frankly, just prohibitively expensive to, to have children in larger families, this may be one of those second-order effects of what we see in a, in a larger economy incoming, uh, which is sad because there are thousands uh, of children waiting to, to be adopted. And this is just one, uh, one part of that. Uh, according to some reports, there are about 135,000. Wow, it's a lot of children. Uh, 135,000 children uh, adopted in the United States each year. Wow, I had no idea. Great. I can move us along to our next story. And this is just uh, a, a medical update story. But the Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, has announced an investment of up to $120 million um, in an effort to speed up uh, low-income countries' access to a new COVID drug. If you're following uh, vaccine and intervention medical news around COVID, you'll remember that Merck has actually developed a pill which drastically decreases uh, the chance of serious illness or death if taken soon after you contract COVID. And this grant from the Gates Foundation uh, appears to be an attempt to make the drug both widely available as well as encourage the production of generic forms of this drug um, and usher them in to low-income countries. And I love this story, one, because a philanthropic organization uh, doing great work here. Um, but another one, because I think that for so long in America, we fixated on on vaccines and vaccines are terribly, terribly important. But uh, fighting COVID, like we're in this game for the long run and we need all the help we can get. So interventions like this, which you get it, that can decrease uh, uh, risk of serious illness or death um, is extremely welcome and will be just another tool in our arsenal. So uh, great to see the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation stepping up here 
and helping with the uh, equitable rollout, hopefully, of this drug. I'm always aware of the unintended, the, the monster of unintended consequences. And I saw this one from yes, positive on the equitable standpoint, but two is the sort of resignation that we'll simply never get vaccinations to a level that they need to be in underdeveloped countries. And instead it's saying that like, we're just going to completely live with this thing and let it run amok from uh, a viral load standpoint and a spreading uh, K factor which is just a fancy way of saying is if you simply say to everyone being like, don't worry about the vaccine, like you won't die from this because we're going to put a, put a pill on the back end of every single hospital. So you'll be protected, but you're still going to be very, very violent spreading this until you end up in the hospital and it's going to continue to spread. And then you essentially have maybe removed some of the motivation someone has around getting the vaccine. And maybe it's just this, the, it's the truth of, the world living with with COVID in the same way that we you know live with variations of the flu and influenza, like this is just what it is now. And you know, rolling this out ahead of time is just acknowledging that. But I, I do, I would bet a dollar here on uh, having it have downward pressure on vaccine adoption as a an unintended consequence potentially here. No, I agree. Um, I guess we'll wait for official approval from the FDA and and see what happens. But yeah, something will follow. I can take us into our last feel-good story for the day. And this is one that comes from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, And it's about a local Kalamazoo nonprofit that thinks they found the solution to affordable housing. They're creating these little housing pods called Mod Pods, and um, they're really cheap uh, and malleable housing units, portable, I should say, um, that can help folks experiencing homelessness um, have a place to stay and live uh, long term. And um, these units are waterproof, they're lighted, they're heated, they're air conditioned, um, and they're e- easy to assemble and disassemble. Um, so uh, this group envisions uh, a village um, of these units um, for folks experiencing homelessness. So just wanted to give a shout out to a nonprofit doing cool, innovative work, and we wish them the best of luck in the implementation of this cool program. I'm a big fan of pulling up these micro housing solutions because I, I really believe in crowded urban areas where it's beginning like frankly harder and harder. We have a housing shortage. We have just a fundamental shortage of the entire building model. Like how do we actually get homes and, you know, this, you know, micro home movement in uh, various cities we see on, on the rise and love highlighting them. Maybe I'll try to chase them down for a, for a podcast interview in the future. Uh, we had a special sponsor a little in-house sponsor from Hallwell University that went out in our in our newsletter, the weekly newsletter, of course, sharing the links and resources for the content here that we go through every week for you. But this is Hallwell University, and we're highlighting the uh, free and low-cost courses to increase traffic and fundraising, especially this time of year. So I know we talked about Facebook, but one of the things that you may want to be thinking about here is effective Facebook fundraisers, which is one of our resources or content marketing and SEO to drive impact or online fundraising essentials as some of the courses at Whole Whale University. And that's wholewhale.com slash university. Nick, thanks as always. I think we had uh, possibly the 
the widest breadth of topics where we went through. So I appreciate the work you're doing out here and helping us summarize and understand this. Of course, we covered a lot of ground. Go us. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 